0: Welcome to Fort William Baptist Church audio sermons. We're so glad you could join with us today. This fall, we have begun a new sermon series called Soteriology. During this series, we will aim to unpack how our God applies salvation to sinful men and women. We are returning to the great doctrines of a sustained and refreshed Christ church since the days of the apostles. With the great works of God before us, effectual calling, regeneration, justification, sanctification and glorification, our hearts will be stirred up to hunger more of the work of God. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Well, brothers and sisters, would you take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, and we're going to start reading in verse 21, and we're going to read through verse 26. So we're in this series called Soteriology, and we're studying salvation. And so Christ has done something great. He lived, he died, he was raised, he ascended to heaven, and through all of his work, he won a great salvation. He is a victor. And so we're studying how we get what Jesus won. Jesus has this this great reward, and he shares it with us. How does he share it with us? That's what this series is all about. And the doctrine we're going to look at this morning is the doctrine of justification. And so let's look at God's word this morning. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Amen. There is an urgency. In the New Testament, you can't miss it when you're reading the New Testament. It's there. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And that might sound a bit strange to you this morning. It might sound a bit primitive or or outdated to you this morning, but it's there. If you go study the New Testament, you will find judgment is coming as plain as day. Just flip the proverbial rock over in the pages of the New Testament, and underneath that rock, you're going to find this reality. Judgment is coming. So just to give you a taste of this and how this works, we can just look at the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul is traveling around the ancient world and he comes to the city of Athens and there's a a crowd in front of him and so he, he starts preaching the gospel. And listen to how he preaches the gospel. He grounds his gospel in the reality that judgment is coming. Acts chapter 17, Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he will give assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So, just to state the obvious, this event is for all people. There are no exemptions permitted. Just as all men are born and all men are to die, all men will stand in judgment. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is or how much money you have in your your bank account or what time you happen to live in history, you will stand in judgment. It doesn't matter what church you belong to or how many good deeds you have done or how good your theology is, how accurate it is, you will stand in judgment. Everyone in this room will stand in judgment on a coming day. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 puts it like this. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. This coming day of judgment will be a day of division. It's going to be about separation, The sheep are going to be separated from the goats, the the chaff from the grain, the righteous from the unrighteous, the saint from the, the sinner. And this separation that's going to take place on this coming day of judgment is of the greatest significance. On that day, some will inherit glory and honor, but for others, they will receive wrath and fury. And so it has to be said that this coming day of judgment is the most important day in history. But as we think about this coming day of judgment, we ask, well, what will the standard be? What are we going to be weighed against? What is justice? Well, we go to the New Testament and we find clear answers. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. He says, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Judgment is coming, and I laid out some logic for you. Judgment is coming. Everyone is going to stand before the Lord on this judgment day, you and me. Some are going to receive wrath and fury. Some are going to receive glory and honor. And what is the standard of this judgment? Well, it is this. It is the law of God. The law of God. And so there's this logic working here, and I just want to stop the flow of logic this morning and pause, because we need to think about this. Now I want you to listen to these, these words from the book of Romans. We've got all of this talk about judgment swirling around in our minds. Now listen to these words from Paul. He says this, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Paul says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about all those words you've just heard. Romans 5, Romans 8. Paul is a preacher of the coming of Jesus. Paul is a preacher of coming judgment. And now think about those words. Do you hear any dread in those words? Do you sense any anxiety in the soul of Paul? And the answer is no. There's not an ounce of anxiety. There's there's no dread in Paul as he considers the judgment day that he has preached to everyone. In fact, when we go to these words in Romans 5 and Romans 8, we, we hear the opposite. What does Paul talk about? He talks about having peace with God. Even more, as he considers the end of all things, he calls it the glory of God, he does what? He rejoices with hope. As he considers standing before the Lord someday, he has assurance. His heart does not quake within him. Instead, he does what? He shouts something. He shouts, no condemnation for me. And as he looks towards the future... And all that can happen to him, he has assurance, an assurance that touches the very depths of his soul. He tells himself, My portion now and forever is this the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's mine. So I want to take a step back from all of that and just ask a question How is such confidence possible? how is such confidence possible? Paul preaches the coming judgment of God, but he talks about peace. He talks about having the love of God in Christ Jesus forever. He says no condemnation. How can he say that? We can think about ourselves this morning. How can I say that? How can you say that? Can you say that? Do you have such confidence in your soul? And our work this morning is to get that confidence because we need it we need it and so what we're going to do this morning is a bit of reverse engineering we 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 see what Paul has in Romans 5 and Romans 8 He he has peace with God he has assurance in his soul and we're going to work backwards from that how does he do that and we can trace it out in the book of Romans because he lays it all out for us And when we start this work of reverse engineering, we we find that Paul's confidence is tied to one reality, and that reality is this, it is justification. Paul traces his confidence always back to that reality. He has been justified by God's grace. So what is this justification all about? So here's the definition just to get us started this morning. So this... Justification is the gracious act of God when he forgives us of all of our sins and counts us as righteous for the sake of Jesus Christ, for this purpose, so that we will pass from death into life in the future judgment. So what is justification? It's a gracious act of God, and in this gracious act, he's doing two things. He's forgiving us of our sins, and then he is giving us he is counting us righteous, and it's all because of Jesus, and there is a purpose. It's about the coming day of judgment. And so we can just apply that definition to our three-word sentence. So God saves sinners. And I want to give you, you two short sentences this morning. How does God save sinners? God saves sinners by saying to the sinner, "Not guilty." That's the first sentence. God saves sinners by saying to the sinner, not guilty. Second sentence. God saves sinners by saying to the sinner, you are righteous. You are righteous. And that's what we're going to explore this morning, how that all works. And So the most important passage on this doctrine is Romans chapter 3, the text we just read. And so we're going to ask three questions of these verses. So question number one. What is justification? Question number two, how does God justify? Question number three, how do I get righteousness? So what is justification? How does God justify? How do we get righteousness? So let's start with the first question. What is justification? So in order to understand this precious doctrine, in order to to see the glory of God revealed in all of this, what we're looking at, We've got to work on some vocabulary this morning. We've got to look on, work on some terminology this morning. And this is going to involve some, some plotting, so stick with me. We've got to work hard in the Scriptures to see the glory of God. So when we look at our text this morning, we can see that in these six verses, Paul is really concerned about what? He's really concerned about righteousness. He keeps repeating this word again and again and again. It shows up just about in every clause of these verses. So look at verse 21. Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Verse 22, Paul says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. So the first thing we need to do is figure out what does Paul mean by righteousness? What does the Bible mean by righteousness? Righteousness. And so when you study the scriptures, this word has a relational bent to it. So it can be applied to God. So God is righteous. That's what the scriptures teach us about God. He is righteous. Well, what does it mean for God to be righteous? Well, it means this, that he always maintains a perfect consistency to his own character. Just think about that. God cannot... Deviate from who he is, not even for a moment. That's what it means for God to be righteous. God is love, and because he is righteous, he will never deviate from his love. God is holy, and because he is righteous, he will never deviate from his holiness. He just can't set his his character beside beside him because he is he is he is righteous. He can never swerve from any of what he is because he is righteous. He is perfectly related to himself. Not only is only God righteous according to himself, but he is righteous as he relates to his creatures. So God is always perfectly consistent to his word. This is God's righteousness. If he has promised to save, he will then save. And because he is righteous, he cannot deviate from the word of his promise. If God has promised to judge the wicked, we can bank on the fact that God will judge the wicked. Because he is righteous, he will not deviate from what he said he was going to do. And this word righteousness can be applied to us, to humans. And so when you read through the scriptures, the stories that we have... We hear certain men being called righteous. Abraham is called righteous. David is called righteous. Elijah is called righteous. And so we ask, well, what does it mean for a man to be righteous before God? Well, it means this. It means to be in a rightly ordered relationship to God. A rightly ordered relationship to God. And so we're building here with this work. And this leads us to see what justification is all about. And so we see this word justification in verse 24. Paul writes and are justified by his grace as a gift. What is Paul saying? He's talking about this whole righteousness thing. He's saying this when he says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. He's saying, God is making men and women righteous in his sight. That's what justification is. He's making men and women righteous. Or we can put it another way. In this work of justification, God is bringing men and women into right relationship with him. So it might be best just to turn to an illustration here to help us get some clarity about this. And so we can transport ourselves into a courtroom. And so in this courtroom, there is a judge, and the judge has listened to the case. He has assessed all the evidence. He has listened to the lawyers argue back and forth, back and forth. And he has sorted through it all, and now he is ready to give his verdict. And we ask, well, what does his verdict do? When the judge gives a verdict, what does the verdict do? Well, we can say one thing, the verdict doesn't change us internally. Just because the judge says something, that doesn't change the, the moral, moral fiber of my, my being. Rather, what does the verdict do? It states with clarity our relationship to the law. So if the judge comes out and he says to you, you're guilty, what is he saying? Well, in relationship to the law, you're condemned. You don't have a good standing with the law. And if he he comes out and he says, you're innocent, what is he saying? You have a good standing with the law. The law has nothing against you. You've conformed to it as far as we can see. And so that's a lot of work we've been plotting in the text. Maybe you're having a hard time following it, but it's important And it's important because it allows us to see the glory of what God has done for us in Jesus. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says this. And after all that we've looked at it, this is staggering. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. Just let that sink in. We can go back to that courtroom and rework that whole scene. And this time, we're the ones in the courtroom, we're the ones on trial, and there we are standing before the judge. All the evidence has been presented, the the lawyers have made their arguments, and you know what? People have been watching the trial, and as they've been watching the trial, it's clear to everyone that you are guilty, plain as day, black and white. You've transgressed the law. In fact, the evidence has been so powerfully argued against you. You're there on the stand, and the prosecuting attorney is grilling you, and you can't give answers. Your mouth is shut up. You you don't have anything to say. It's so clear even to yourself that you're you're guilty. The trial's just about over, and the judge stands up, and he's going to give his verdict. What does he do? Romans chapter 4, verse 5. God justifies the ungodly. He stands up and says, you are acquitted of all your crimes. Even more, he stands up and says, You are righteous, I declare it so. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And it's amazing. And the work that we have done in the text allows us to see the goodness of the gospel. And when you read through the scriptures, this is what is celebrated from the beginning of the scriptures to the end of the scriptures. This work that God does of justifying the ungodly. Is celebrated in Psalm 103. We sang it this morning. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. The psalmist is celebrating Romans chapter 4, verse 5. The prophets came to Israel and they're proclaiming the gospel to them about what God was going to do for them in the future. What were the prophets doing? They're celebrating Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Isaiah puts it like this. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. As we think about the the ministry of Jesus, Jesus' ministry was all about Romans chapter four, verse five. God justifies the ungodly. Do you remember that scene where Jesus is with that paralytic and he he looks at the man and he says, What? Son, your sins are forgiven. And as we think about our future, if you are in Jesus today, this is your future. You're going to sing about Romans chapter 4, verse 5, forever. God justifies the ungodly. Revelation chapter 5 gives us a taste of our future where we sing to Jesus this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign On the earth. So, question number one what is justification? We see it. God is taking sinful men and women and bringing them into right relationship with Him. Or, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, God justifies the ungodly. And so, we see from the work that we have done the goodness of God. We see it in the forgiveness of sins, in the declaration of righteousness, in this good standing we get. But this leads to our second question. Well, how does God justify? How does God do this? And as we think about what God does in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, this brings some important questions to the surface. How can God be righteous if he justifies the ungodly? How can God be holy if he fellowships with unholy sinners? How can God be just at all if he just lets evil pass by? If he just lets it go? How does God justify us? The Apostle Paul is very concerned with this line of questioning. In fact, the very reason he wrote the text we've read this morning was to justify God himself. Look at verse 26. Paul is making an argument. He says this. It was to show that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is Paul saying here? He's shouting at us. God can both forgive sinners, he can make righteous sinners, and still maintain his own righteousness at the same time. So the question is, well, how does God do this? How does God justify the sinner and maintain his own righteousness at the same time? The answer to this question is right there in the text. We're looking at it. Verses 22 through 25. And these are words that are so important that we just need to work through them clause by clause. Look at verse 22. Paul begins answering this question by saying this. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we learn some important truth about ourselves here. The new status that God gives to sinners has nothing to do with with our own personal performance. In fact, as we look at the text in front of us, our personal performance is the problem. We haven't carried out the law of God. We haven't lived for the glory of God. In fact, we've we've missed the mark. We've twisted our ways. We've perverted our paths. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul doubles down on this. And just to clarify, he says our deeds, our works, our performances can never set things right between us and God. The the, the hole that we have dug in sin is so deep that we can never climb out of it for ourselves. Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 20. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So what is Paul doing here in verse 22? You can think of like a, a boxing match. Paul's this great boxer, and he draws his right arm back, and he lands this hook right on our jaw, and he knocks us out. We're laying on the ground. We're staring up the sky. And why does he do this? So that he might change the way we we look at the work of justification. Justification is not about what we do or what we can do. Instead, it's about what? It's about what God has done and only about what God has done. Look at verse 24. Paul is setting us up to see this. He says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. This whole matter of justification is not built upon our work, our potential performance, but upon the freedom of God's grace. And all that we do in justification is we come to God and we simply receive from him and are justified by his grace as a gift. And so in these verses, verse 22 and 23 and 24, what is Paul doing? He's laying the framework for justification. And the framework was this, no works here, only grace. But as we think about Paul's words, he still hasn't answered our question. Why can God set aside our works and why can he give us grace? Even more, how can God be righteous in setting aside our works and giving us grace? And Paul gives us an answer. And he gives us an answer when he connects our justification to Jesus. Verse 24, verse 25. Paul says, Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's the answer. That's how God can be just. So as we look at those two verses, we see that Paul uses this big word, propitiation. And what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to help us see the meaning of Jesus' death. He's helping us trying to get our arms around what Jesus has done for us. And so we've read the accounts of Jesus' death. Just think about all the details we learn about Jesus' death in the gospel stories. We learn about his unjust trial. We hear the stories of how he's whipped... And a crown of thorns is put up on his head. We we hear the stories of how he's led out to Golgotha. And the crowds are jeering him, and the, the Pharisees and the scribes are all smacking him with his word their words. We see that Christ is nailed to this cross. The sky goes black. There's blood. We hear the cry of forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And finally, Jesus dies. He stops breathing. We ask, what do all of these details mean? What's going on in all of this? Is this just a tragedy? Paul says, no. What was happening there is this. God put forward his son as a propitiation for us. We have to understand this. Justification is not a magic trick. God is not a magician where he just waves his wand and a cloud of smoke happens and then our sins are gone. Justification is not a product of selective memory. God does not just simply forget about our sins as if he is aging and he can't remember what he set out to do. Justification is not some sort of therapy for God as if his emotions are all out of order and he just needs a good talking to to settle down. Just cool down on your wrath, Lord. And change the way you're thinking. Think about something positive here. Rather, Paul tells us at the cross, the justice of God was fully satisfied. There's no magic at the cross. There's no forgetfulness at the cross. There's no fickleness at the cross. There at the cross, Paul is telling us with this word, the guilt of God's elect was piled high on the shoulders of Jesus. That's what was going on at the cross. The scriptures tell us, he who knew no sin became sin. Just think about what was going on at the cross. Think personally about this. Every single one of your sins, from the day you were born to the day you die, was taken and attributed to Jesus. And Paul tells us what Christ did in his death was this. He met the wrath of God. Remember, we read this passage from Romans chapter 2 where Paul tells us, if you're an evildoer, what are you going to get from God? What was his answer? Wrath and fury. If you do evil, you will inherit wrath and fury. That's all that there is for you. And what Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 3 is that Jesus has met that wrath and fury. The great day of judgment has arrived in the present and has fallen upon Jesus for the sake of his people. That's what Paul is saying with this word. And with stunning clarity, Paul gives us an idea, and it's what we see in the scriptures. Isaiah 53 He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And what? And what? And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of of us all. That's what happened at the cross. And I tell you something, this is the confidence of the Christian. This is our confidence, this is my confidence, this should be your confidence. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our stead. This is our rock of comfort, our only rock of comfort. Jesus carried away my sins and I will never see them again. This is our true confidence the judgment day, my judgment day, has fallen upon Christ once and for all. We need to get this into our souls. We need to feel it. We need to own it. This past week, I was reading, and I came across this ancient visitation manual for pastors. And so there's this name by the, by, guy by the name of Anselm, and he lived just about a 1,000 years ago, and he sat down and he wrote this little manual to help pastors go visit the sick and the dying. And he wanted these pastors to have something intelligent to say, something helpful to say to the sick and the dying. And, And so he wrote this little thing about the death of Jesus. I want you to listen to it, because this is what Christian confidence is all about. It starts like this. If God would judge you, say... Lord, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and your judgment. If God says to you that you are a sinner, say this, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and all of my sins. If God says to you that you deserve damnation, say, Lord, I put the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between you and all of my sins, for I offer his merits for my own, which I should have, and I don't. And if he says to you that he is angry with you, if he says to you that he is angry with you, say this to him, Lord, I place the death of the Lord Jesus Christ between me and your anger. Do you see what Christian confidence is all about? Christian confidence is all about the death of Jesus. That's the only way you can have confidence to stand in judgment, is if you know the death of Jesus and if you have the death of Jesus. And so what will you plead? Can you plead like that? Anselm wrote that a thousand years ago. Are those the words of your own soul? Or are you pleading something else? Are you hoping in something else? If he says to you that he is angry with you, say to him, Lord, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and your anger. You gotta know the death of Jesus. Jesus. Question number three. How do we get righteousness? How do we get it for ourselves, own it, have it? And Paul gives us an answer twice. He doesn't want us to miss it. We see it in verse 22. He writes, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he repeats himself in verse 25. He says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by God. Faith. And so, as we think about this whole process of justification, we can see that faith is integral to all of this. What is this faith? Well, faith is this bond forged by the Spirit between the sinner and Jesus. In this bond, the sinner receives all the goodness of Jesus. Christ has obedience, Christ has perfection, Christ has righteousness. And in this bond, Christ receives all that we have. And what do we have? We have sin, guilt, and misery. And in faith, all of this is shared. Perhaps the best way to think about all of this is by thinking about marriage. When Martin Luther preached justification, this was his favorite way to tell about faith, what faith does. And so we can ask, well, what happens to a man when he marries a woman? Well, there's this sharing that takes place. A man might have all sorts of possession. He gets married to his wife and all of a sudden, everything that he owned now belongs to her as well. And the opposite happens too. When the the woman gets married to the man, all that she has is, is transferred and belongs to the man as well. There's this sharing. So what does this mean for us in faith? Well, Luther talks about it like this and he's a bit provocative and his provocation is really helpful. Luther compares the believer to what? A prostitute. And he compares Christ to a rich nobleman. So you can picture this in your mind. Christ is this rich nobleman. He has everything. He's got lands. He has fortunes. He has a good reputation. He is a holy and righteous man. And who are we? Well, we're a prostitute. We have degraded ourselves. We're full of sin and shame. And so what happens in this marriage of faith? Luther puts it like this. He writes... Christ is full of grace, full of life, and full of salvation. The soul is full of sin, full of death, full of damnation. Now let faith intervene, and it will turn out that sin, death, and hell are Christ's. But grace, life, and salvation are the soul's. For if he is the groom, then he should share and accept the things belonging to the bride and then impart to the bride those things that belong to him hear what he's talking about? There's this sharing. And Luther keeps writing, he says this. So it happens that the faithful soul through the wedding ring of faith is free from all sin, secure against death, protected against hell, given eternal righteousness, life and salvation all from her bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And so what does this mean? What does this mean for us? Oh, faith builds a holy confidence in the sinner. When you understand what faith does in this union that is forged between the sinner and Jesus, it gives us holy confidence. We're different forever. And this is how Luther finishes his illustration of the marriage of faith. And he puts all the pieces of our sermon together for us. He says this. Who can even begin to appreciate this royal marriage What can comprehend the riches of this glorious grace? Here is this rich, upstanding bridegroom, Christ. And he marries this poor, disloyal prostitute, and he redeems her from all her evil and adorns her with all of his goodness. For now it is impossible for her sin to destroy her because they have been laid on Jesus and devoured by Jesus. In Christ, her bridegroom, she has his righteousness, which she can enjoy as her own property. And this is the clincher. This is the clincher. And with confidence, she can set this righteousness over against all of her sins. And in opposition to death and hell, it can say this. Oh, we got to own this. Sure, I have sinned. But my Christ in whom I trust has not sinned. All that is his is mine, and all that is mine is his. That's what faith does. Think about this, Christian. Tomorrow you're going to sin. Better yet, probably in the next hour or two, you're going to sin against the Lord. What is your confidence that that sin will not be held against you? Well, it is this marriage of faith between you and Jesus. That is your confidence. And we can say if we get this justification thing, sure, I have sinned. I have sinned all my life and I will keep on sinning. But get this, my Christ in whom I trust has not sinned, and all that is his is mine. And all that is mine is his. That's what faith is all about. How do we get righteousness? We need it. We get it by faith in Jesus. And faith is this bond between the sinner and Jesus where everything is shared. Everything is shared. And so we can close with how we began. Brothers and sisters, I tell you this judgment is coming. And you will stand, every single one of you. Doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, you will stand in judgment. And some on that day are going to receive glory and honor, and some on that day are going to receive wrath and fear. You can count on it, it's going to happen. This day is drawing closer every single hour, and you will be judged according to the law of God. And I ask you this day, do you have confidence? Do you have confidence? And I tell you today, you can have confidence. Oh, get this this is the precious truth of the gospel for all those who receive jesus by faith even today even in this moment you can receive your judgment right now that's what justification is all about that judgment at the end of the days at the end of days is now brought forward into the present when you believe in jesus and you receive the verdict at the end of time right now in the present that's what's happening in justification and so then you can go to that last day knowing the verdict already and why can you get that verdict? Because Jesus has died in your place. And so the call of the gospel today is so simple, and it's so needed. Look to Jesus. Trust Jesus today. Hold on to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. I plead with you this day, trust in Jesus. It's all that matters. It's the only way you can have confidence. It's the only way you can stand in that judgment day. Will you cling to Jesus this day? Do you believe in Jesus already? Here's the call. Trust in Jesus again. We never get to move past the truth of Romans chapter 3. We keep clinging to the truth of Jesus. As Luther instructs us, I have sinned. But my Christ in whom I trust has not sinned. Have you never trusted in Jesus before? Trust in him now and you will receive the righteousness of God and it will be yours as your own property. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice in you. And we ask Would you give us faith this day that we might see Christ? Would you move our hearts to trust in Christ alone because Christ alone is our hope. We praise you for his death because it is sufficient. It is all that we need in this life. Father, would you fill us with love now for Jesus? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.